Friends, regardless of where you are in the world, whenever the term conscious parenting comes up, the one name that immediately comes to one's mind is that of Dr. Shefali Sabari, our special guest today on the Beginner's Mind series. You're welcome. Her approach. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to have you. Her approach inspires parents to raise themselves first before they hope to raise their children. I think that's a very powerful statement. Raise yourself before you raise your kids. Eliminating industrial age traditional ideas of control and punishment, she teaches parents the value of true connection over correction. Our gorgeous, witty, articulate and inspiring guest today is a New York Times selling best author of several books. Your latest being um, the one that you co-authored with uh, Rini Jain, I believe, it's already on the bestseller chart uh, called Superpowered, right? Yep. I Fantastic. There we are. Superpowered, guys. And I love your Viral Wisdom videos um, coming every day. Is that like the first thing in the morning that you do? No, I was doing it every day. I did it for 52 days straight, but now I do wow. them every, every Sunday. I, I love that sort of consistency. I wish I could have more of it. <laughs> Dr. Shifali integrates Eastern mindfulness with Western psychology, and Oprah has hailed your work as revolutionary. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Dr. Shifali Sabari. Hi. Thank you, uh, Dr. Shifali, for taking out the time for this conversation today. And so are you going to be skipping the viral uh, wisdom video today or is it on? No, it's only once a week now. Now I do All right. it on okay. Monday, so, Great, yeah. great, great. On the, on the website of the California Institute of Integral Studies, um, where you're mentioned on the illustrious alumni page, Richard Buggs writes, in 1993, Dr. Shefali Sabari, and then Shefali Sabari, PDT 96, traveled from Mumbai, India, to CIS campus, which was located in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district at the time, only 21 years old, she couldn't have imagined how her life was about to change. Dr. Shefali, a lot of people travel from the West to India to quote unquote, discover themselves, right? Your quest um, took you westwards. What drew you to America and what made you stay? Take us through your early days about your journey in America, your struggles, your triumphs and your memorable moments. Yeah, what a great question. Uh, <clears throat> I think we all, some of us have a wanderlust mm -hmm. to go and find ourselves out of the mire of the uh, culture we have been steeped in. So from a young age, I just knew I wanted to see something different and feel something different. So I think it's the same wanderlust that those people come to India for. And I went westward, you know, it's basically just that urge, that desire to seek something beyond what you have known. So I had it since a young age. And from the age of 11 or 12, I was begging my father to send me away. And he was, he, he was like, but we're not even cruel. And I had a beautiful family and I have a beautiful family. But I just couldn't get rid of it. And he kept me, you know, you know, Indian fathers are protect more protective than typical. And that's right. He kept me, kept me, kept me till I literally took a chainsaw and cut the the chains that were attaching me in a 21. The cord. I, yeah, the cord. And I went to San Francisco uh, to this fabulous school called the California Institute of Integral Studies, which actually integrates East and West, which is what I do right now. So mm -hmm. I found my home right away. 
um, because I knew I wanted to study human psychology and mysticism and uh, spirituality and meditation. I knew that by 21. Right. So as soon as I got to America, I actually began meditating and went for Vipassana meditation. So yes, I found myself uh, right as soon as I got there. It was almost as if I was just waiting to find myself, right? I was there. My, my right. true self was right there, but I hadn't discovered it. And that's mm -hmm. what I encountered. Mm -hmm. I spent the next you know, 25 years really immersing myself in psychology and meditation and became a teacher, not because I'm a teacher that knows anything. It's really because the best student uh, is, is the teacher, right? The student Indeed. is the teacher. Indeed. And it is through teaching that you really learn. And I, I, that's what I feel like. I'm not teaching, I'm learning every day. As they, so as they say, I, you, when you're teaching, you learn twice, you're, exactly. you're learning all over again, right? That's beautiful. Exactly. Exactly. So my, my writing, my books are for myself and to become a deeper thinker and a, and a better human being. So it so happened that other people liked it or get inspired by it, but that really wasn't my intention ever. Mm -hmm. So it was just my own desire to become my most authentic self. Right, right. And um, was it a deliberate, was the move towards conscious parenting and you've launched like a whole movement and was this um, deliberate or because when, when we talk about self-improvement, there's a whole ocean out there. So how did you get into the work that you're doing right now? Was it chance yeah. or did, yeah? Right. So nothing is chance and nothing is deliberate. I think it's something more complex. Mm -hmm. um, it was serendipitous, meaning I didn't have an idea that I'm going to attack this niche in the market and strategically right. this is a void and I'm going to fill it. Mm -hmm. So it was serendipitous because it wasn't strategic like that. However, it was, and it wasn't deliberate in some sort of, you know, mechanized way, but it was, it was the inevitable fallout of my own growth. So in that way, it was deliberate. Wow, it was that, that's very, beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah, was, the inevitable, very... the inevitable fallout of your own inner growth. That's beautiful. Correct. So it was yeah. very precise in that way. If you looked at my growth and the causes and effects in my singular evolution, it 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 just naturally took me to mm -hmm. that. You know, I was a meditator. I had been studying psychology. I became a mother. It profoundly changed my life. I just integrated all of it effortlessly and writing is my art. So I wrote, I mean, it just was, it was absolutely the most natural unfolding. And, and those are the most authentic uh, manifestations, I think, of flow when it comes from your own inner being and it's right. not cerebral and it's not agendified. True. So, and that's how I flow in life. You know, I'm always coming from the inside out. And that's what I teach, that parenting is from the inside out. Raising your child has to be an inside out job, mm -hmm. not an outside in job where you mm -hmm. take a technique by a Dr. Spock or a technique by the latest fad and right. you apply it without understanding who your child is. It's beautiful what you said about the unfolding, you know, the famous uh, Indian saint philosopher Swami Vivekananda, he said it, uh, he said it beautifully when he said, when the flower turns into the fruit, um, the flower must die in the process. Its old self must be destroyed in order 
for the new self to emerge. And I think uh, that's how, when we talk about, when, when you said about not being strategic and allowing things to happen, I correlate that with my journey as well. In 2007, after having spent about 12 years in different countries across the world, I returned back to India and I took a new path. And people ask me, did I decide at that point of time that this is what I wanted to do? And the answer is absolutely not. You know, there was like a vague picture of that. I want to um, express with these voice that I, I can no longer suppress. So that, that I can resonate with what you're saying. We have a question that came in from one of our YouTube subscribers um, who's curious to know what role you feel your parents might have played in the work that you've chosen today. Well, I think they've played a profound role. Um, and they were not without their own unconscious baggage. So they gave me a healthy dose of things to work out. But thankfully, they were also not so messed up that I, I had spent, you know, years in therapy. Um, mm -hmm. So I attribute a lot of my capacity to tolerate the profound journey of awakening to them. Uh, you know, awakening is not an easy journey. You know, to awaken takes guts. Right. You have to be supported, you know. Um, I've always been off the beaten path and my parents have always supported me. They, that's a blessing, you know, isn't it? That's a blessing. So if I didn't have that, I don't know, maybe I would have been even more maverick. We don't know, but thankfully they didn't make it hard for me to rebel against conditions or traditions that I thought were, were archaic. They did not shame me for doing things that were unconventional. They have been stalwart, unconditional supporters of me. And that is the key mm -hmm. in the parent-child relationship. So my parents modeled that for me and gave me freedom to mess up and, you know, never shamed me, always gave me a sense of validity in whoever I was. Um, so these are the jewels that every parent can bestow their children. That's beautiful. And um, so... My, my next question was going to be on these lines as well. Um, you had the privilege of having parents who would allow you to find your own path. I was lucky enough also to have parents. Dad was always busy. Mom was like, you do whatever you want to do, right? And so eventually ended up making my mistakes, but also coming to my own conclusions, right? And self-regulating, that's something that was really important that happened in the process. So how do you feel, what is the role that, you feel that parents can play in allowing children to find their own path or their own calling? Should, should one be practicing non-intervention or is there like a middle path that parents could be perhaps playing the role of a good coach or something to help young children find their own path? Yes. So the answer may take a few moments. So the, the deep answer is that the parent needs to understand their role in their child's lives. Right. Typically, traditional cultures like India, the parent thinks that they are the child's god, king, mm -hmm. ruler, and owner. So that is not what a parent is, right? A parent is not the owner or the possessor or the controller of the child. And that is the fundamental error that we make as parents. We think, oh, just because we gave birth or even through adoption, now this being is under our control. You know, right. Kasavana is my Izzat. Right. It is my name, my family. Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. the child has nothing to do with your 
insecurities and your family and your tradition. And your honor, the Izzat word that you mentioned, especially in you know parts of uh, Northern India and Central India, um, we've had huge issues about, uh, especially around women, not being able to pursue what the lead the lives that they wanted to lead just because of this whole cultural thing about Izzat and honor, right? Yeah, so culturally, Indians really need to get their messaging straight towards their children, and we are we are fairly primitive in that area, and uh, there are many factors for that, economic and literacy. And so, I'm not uh, making it sound simple or or denigrating where we are. However, so that's the key: is that we are we are our mindset as parents is fundamentally flawed, and so everything trickles from there. So if the parent thinks that the child belongs to them and therefore uh, the, the child owes them something and, and therefore the child is betrothed to the parent's wishes, this is dangerous because for right. the most part, most parents are unconscious themselves. Mm-hmm. Most parents are steeped in, in systems of hierarchy and linearity of their own parents. Right. They've come from their own shame and guilt from their parents. So mm-hmm. we just pass this down to our children. Right. And you know, Indian parents are notoriously skilled at uh, pu- pu- pulling the guilt strings. <laughs> they are indeed, yes. <laughs> right. So, and that, those invisible strings, that's what keeps you mired. You know, that's what keeps you mired. That's what makes the kid feel bad for, for just having a, their own inherent mindset or their own inherent desire. Like, right. how am I hurting you if I want to go study in China? And mm-hmm. the mother's like, oh, you know, but I'll miss you. Well, that's because your life is not full and vibrant mm-hmm. without me. You need to have your own life, mm-hmm. right? But uh, these parents think it's virtuous. And this is the model in Hindi movies that that the mother sacrifices Right. Everybody. So that, that's where they set the bar. They, they set the bar that that's a bare minimum that you got to. You're expected, the culture expects you to sacrifice your own life and your own right. dreams for your children, and right? This, right. And this comes a little bit from, you know, the, the Jesus mentality of, you know, Jesus died on the cross and you dare to. So you can't do anything now because he died for you on the cross. You know, mm-hmm. but the Indian mother, that that mentality is kind of the same. And the question we need to actually ask the mother is, Nobody asked you to have this child, but somehow the mother feels that she did the world a favor and the child a favor by having the child. So now the child feels, oh my goodness, I owe this person my life, which on the biological level is correct, right. but certainly not on the psychological level. So we've, we've got two. We've got two sets of. We've got two generations messed up now, <laughs> because the child also is living with this guilt. Because hey, my parents sacrificed all this for me, so now it's my time to give back. And then the, of course, the parent. So it gets passed on generations, and we've got multiple layers messed up. Correct. So now, if the child is giving back to the parent, when this child becomes a parent, it's going to expect the same from its child. Right. And this is what we see with the mother-in-law syndrome in India. Mm-hmm. You know, why does the mother-in-law, you know, the prototype of this mother-in-law, why has it continued? It's because the mother-in-law was abused as a daughter-in-law. She became the mother-in-law. She continued it and it goes on and on. And right. nobody breaks it because you're like, I did all these things. My mother-in-law did all these things and I didn't say anything. So how is my daughter-in-law talking to me like this? So we keep expecting the same thing. Mm-hmm. We, we, perpet- we perpetuated and uh, while a lot of that is changing with education and globalization and youngsters sort of 
um, understanding that we've all got one life to live. And so there must be some sort of boundaries and parents are also evolving with this. So a lot is changing. A lot of good stuff is happening here too in India, but I'd like to see, as I'm sure everywhere across the world, right? So does Dr. Shefali have a start, stop, continue list for conscious parenting? What do you feel that most parents are not doing at the moment that they should start doing will add great value things that they should stop doing and things that they should continue doing? Well, I think the greatest gift we can give anybody is to awaken ourselves. And what does that mean? That means that we look at our lives with awareness. Mm -hmm. We see ourselves robotically living out patterns and we stop and we question them and we disrupt the patterns that are just blindly being followed. And traditional cultures, again, like India, because there's so many patterns that are just passed down generation after generation, we now automatically do them out of habit and we don't question their value. You know, even something as simple that which is global that, you know, Oh, I just want my child to be happy. You know, I debunk that, you know, I, I, I viciously debunk that notion. I just want my child to be happy. Right. What do you mean you just want your child to be happy? It sounds like an amazing thing, but have you ever thought about what that really means? Mm-hmm. And then I deconstruct it for parents to show them that they don't even know what happiness is. It's just it just is not being sad. And then I say to them, well, why is being sad unworthy? And they go, well, I don't know, I guess, you know, because we all should be happy, you know, and mm-hmm. they just don't they chase their own tail because they never really understood. Right. That this is just a notion that they're just passing on. Sadness mm-hmm. is vital. Anger is vital. These are natural emotions. Emotions, right. That are here to, to teach us. Mm-hmm. So, so I teach parents to change from the ideal of wanting your children to be happy to wanting your children to experience their lives authentically. You know, wow. Whatever shows up, it shows up. Mm-hmm. If we're looking for happiness, then anything that looks against that feels like you failed as a parent and feels right. like the child is a failure. Right. And that's a big problem in the world. That's why mm-hmm. we medicate. That's why we numb ourselves with food and alcohol because we're all looking for happiness. And we are we find it unbearable to feel our feelings. And so and my definition as a parent of happiness might differ greatly from the child's definition of happiness. Exactly. So did you see this I said this example to show you how robotic we are mm. with these picky maxims and traditions which really have no value, you know? They, mm-hmm. They're from like your great, 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 great grandparents' generation, and we haven't evolved with them. So the greatest gift you said, what, where can parents start? They can start by examining their own lives and their own belief systems and be brave to look at themselves in the mirror mm-hmm. and really become aware, become questioners and seekers in their right. lives rather than puppets and in a herd. Is there something you feel in all your work, all these years that parents do get right and they should continue doing across cultures, whether it's here in India or or in the United States? Well, it's not right or wrong. You know, every parent comes from the best intention. I Mm -hmm. think we just, as humans, are very unconscious. And in our love relationships, in our friendships, in in our greed. So the one thing that we all, quote unquote, do wrong, the curse of the, of the human existence is we get wrapped up in our own ego. We get wrapped up in our own sense of worth. Truth. So anytime that sense of worth is attacked, we go looking for it on the outside. Right. And the, the, the job, the journey is really to go within. 
you've said it beautifully. Uh, and because in many instances, especially with successful parents, what happens is now their success has somehow become a huge liability for the next generations. The next generation is expected to carry on the family business or whatever else that they're doing just because the dad spent his entire life building it. So now the son is expected to follow those uh, footprints. Uh, Dr. Shwali, my next question is about regrets, about um, do in your work, you must have observed, um, you know, when people open up and, you know, they sort of have, they evolve. Um, are there top five parenting regrets, just like the Australian nurse, Bronnie Ware came up with the list of the top five regrets of the dying people. Do you, have you come across top five regrets of parents that if they could undo, if they could go back into the past and change certain things, what would most of them want to change? Yeah, well, here's my answer, which could be frustrating for the listener. I teach people that there's no such thing as regret because consciousness is evolving. So the fact that we think, you know, regret is like, oh, I wish I could have done that differently. That is a fallacy Mm -hmm. because you can only do what your consciousness allowed you to do. And we are all growing on a continuum of consciousness. So I teach people that it's almost narcissistic to now beat yourself with guilt and regret as if you should have been a bodhisattva at 45 or 35. You were who you were. Right. That was your level of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So I teach people to fully accept with humility that that's who they were. But now there's somebody else. But the two people are not even connected because so many million causes and effects have passed that to even think that you are that person Oh, you know, at 18, I, I, I crashed my car into a tree. I regret. I mean, it's just insane. Like a, it's a waste of mental energy. Can't do and anything about people, it. Though. Right. And we're here now. And I teach people to enter the now and realize that you're only here now because of that mishap. So it's so wonderful that that, that happened. So don't regret. There's no such thing as regret. It's, it's, a, it's a way to keep your mind busy. That's all. Wow. That's great. There's no such thing as regret because you're here in the now, you can't change the past. So take this moment and make the very best of it. We've got some uh, questions from our subscribers and online tribe. And one of them happened to be from a practicing doctor, who, uh, Dr. Nikhar Mahajan, and she's talking about balancing work. Uh, on the one side, we have, um, as Cheryl Sandberg talks about leading in and breaking the glass ceilings, being that career woman. And on the other side, there is this parental guilt of, um, you know, um, perhaps I'm not being a good mother if I'm putting all my attention towards my career. What are your thoughts for young mothers, especially career focused young mothers um, on that topic? Yeah, it's difficult. I think we women are at an interesting time in, in our modern history where now access to the quote unquote man's world, uh, I say that in quotes, uh, is now available. So now we are in a little bit of a conundrum because we do inherently want to nurture our children uh, 24-7, especially when they're young. I mean, I had this battle in my own self and I had to prioritize, you know. So for me, once I became a mother, it was very clear to me that that was my sacred primary responsibility. And, you know, the minute she turned 13 or 14, I took off like a rocket because I was waiting for her to kind of stand on her two feet. And she complained. She was like, what happened to my, my 24-7 slave? <laughs> Who was available like, earlier, right? Yeah, where's my right. slave? Right. And I was like, woman, you know, now I've done my job. Like, right. But I had to kind of, one had to go in the foreground and one had to come in the background. Right. So becoming a parent, especially a mother, 
uh, is a very different thing than becoming a father. Uh, and I, I don't mean to sound sexist. It just is a different relationship because they, for the biological mother and the adopted mother, but more the biological mother, there's this undeniable biology, this bond that you can yell at your husband for not having, but they can't have it. They just mm-hmm. can't have it because right. they didn't have it. And right. the oxytocin that we, 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 we developed and that bond, that love bond at birth and nursing, it's just so fundamentally different. So a mother who wants to live, work outside the house out of choice can, can negotiate that. Now, many mothers, as you know, in India, they're working 24-7 in the construction sites and they have no choice. Right. So there's no choice, you know, they have no choice. We're talking about the privilege to have a choice. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of negotiate that, you know, if you want to be outside the house, well, then your mothering is going to go down. No, no need to be guilty about it. Just make a decision, make a choice and embody the choice. But I would say while your children are young, they kind of have to come first and you have right. to find a way to do it. Mm-hmm. And don't, don't do it out of your ego. Don't go working outside the house looking for your sense of self. You know, your sense of self can be found right here in the mothering process. But on the other hand, do not go outside the house because you think you need to be a 24-7 mother. There is a way to do both, but you have to kind of balance it out. And there's no perfect balance, but you have to kind of negotiate. I think you made a very important point here about learning um, to not find your self-worth either in the work outside the home. And some of them tend to do it. uh, They tend to search for it in, in the work at home. So as long as it's a natural flow and not natural expression of love and joy, I think you'll find the right balance. You've answered it beautifully. Yeah. My next question is a bit hypothetical, is about if given a chance to reinvent the education system so that we don't end up producing more broken adults, what changes would you like to uh, introduce if you had the opportunity to reinvent how we teach youngsters? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing goes away. You know, you, you uh, the whole thing, it is the worst system, and I hate to talk like that, because it's linear, it's hierarchical, it's based on numbers, it's based on output, it's based on goals. It is just all wrong. It's based on reward, punishment, good, bad, uh, better, worse. I mean, that's how we're so messed up. Mm-hmm. And it is, in, in India, it's based on rote learning, on mechanization, on, on data collection, instead of critical thinking and anal- analysis. So... I would change it all. I would have three hours on the core subjects. I would have four hours on life subjects, conflict resolution, emotional literacy, meditation and stillness, creativity, gardening, be connected to the earth. And then as the child goes older and you naturally can see that this kid is never going to study calculus ever in his life, you drop it. Mm -hmm. You don't keep pushing it. You let the children start branching out, the ones who show natural tendencies, to their natural tendencies. You know, I am not a math person and I knew I would never do math, but I was a stunning literature person or whatever. And I was not allowed to spend time doing what I loved. And Mm -hmm. this idea that you need, you know, this one size fits all absolutely needs to change. And what's your take on uh, one of India's leading exports being CEOs of major corporations across the world, right from pharma majors to telecom to um, IT um, and especially the success of um, Indian Americans, you know, what, what's your take on that? Is, do you see a correlation, a positive, a negative, or what's your take on that? Well, you're talking about a very small number anyway, you know, so. Very, very influential, very influential. 
Yeah, but it's a small number. So <laughs> I, I'm not so impressed, but maybe you are. So ask me a question. Your question is, what, what, like, my, my question is, is there, is, is there a correlation between um, the Indian education system or, I mean, are these exceptions? Oh, I are see, these, I is, there, is there, is, could there be possibly a bright side to uh, how we teach youngsters or are these exceptions? Um, no, these are exceptions. There's no bright side because ask these people who are so successful if they would like to go back into the vote learning and the mechanization and be scared of their exam results and they will say no mm -hmm. and oh sure they may say that oh it gave me discipline or it made me respect elders you know how we like to say these things but that's not what made who made what made the genius the genius you know uh i think it's free thinkers uh, rebels um unconventional thinkers that make it to such a level of influence that you're talking about and all systems uh, dissuade rebels so it's just it's just these are the ones who kind of were the outliers who went out of the box and sure they'll attribute some of their success you know to something from school just to be respectful but really that's not what the system any system institution anyone religion education mm -hmm. marriage it's all for uniformity and conformity. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you're even talking about outliers is because they've broken the system. They've broken the They've broken free. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll skip the name for this one. That's coming from one of our social media uh, contacts. Um, because if the child gets to know tomorrow, he or she is not going to be happy. <laughs> but this is what the dad is asking: how to tackle a rigid and very adamant child of ten years? He's always angry and skewed towards time wasting. He's a little procrastinator. Any solutions, Doctor Shifali? We've tried always. <laughs> no, I say no, that with yeah. tongue in cheek. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. No, they haven't because they're blame. They're, they're looking at the child. And they're calling the child difficult and, and intransigent and stubborn. Mm -hmm. And the child is being labeled. So, you know, my, my whole way is like, oh, give me the labels for the parent. Right. And there is no difficult child without a difficult parent. Wow. They go hand in hand. The reason that the child is difficult is because the child is not doing what I want them to do. Right. So, so if, so if they would be, if the child would be now agreeing to what I'm saying, suddenly it'll be a good child, quote unquote, the good child, right? <laughs> right. There is no such thing as good child or bad child. It's just, do, does the child comply? Is the child obedient or is the child a bloody little questioner, Rebel. you know, yeah. and, and pokes back at me? A 10-year-old mm -hmm. is not difficult. It, the, the circumstances are difficult. The dynamic is difficult. So we have to reframe how we look at things. And this takes work. The parent needs to, you know, get a coach and get mm -hmm. see the situation differently and everything changes. I think I'll just repeat what you said. There is no difficult child without a difficult parent. And I think that, that one line answers this entire question. Thank you. My next one is coming from your hometown, Mumbai, from a younger entrepreneur, Sadhanshu, who is curious, like just like millions out there, how to make a typical Indian parent realize that they need to work on themselves before they start fixing their kid. So if you are a parent and you want to help your parent or just another parent, uh, you can guide them, you can shine the light, you can say, hey, go listen to somebody. But if they don't, you have to be in your consciousness to realize that you can't drag the camel to the water, whatever the phrase is, you know, you can't. So let it go. Everyone arrives at their own awakening. You can't push this on anyone. And that's frustrating, especially if it's your partner. You have to release this is a very deep process. It's not something that everyone can just go, oh, great idea. 
You know, no, it's not an idea. It's something that the person has to be mature enough to arrive at and be intelligent enough to arrive at and courageous enough to break old patterns. So that's why I'm not, I I say 0.00001% can even arrive at the desire to awaken. Sorry, the numbers are very small. (laughs) Sure, sure. Is is there a way a teenager who's at war with the parents about, you know, he or she wants to take a different path, a different trajectory than what is being forced upon them? Is there a way they can trigger something in the parent to help them realize, hey, give me my space and let me find my own path? Yeah, sadly, that teenager will have to fight and cry and bang walls and, and be called a bad child and be called a rebel. Mm-hmm. When actually, you know, teenagers just trying to get their life in order. Right. And that poor teenager, you know, and maybe if they yell enough loudly or cry loudly enough, the parent will awaken. But most likely, the teenager will feel ostracized or the teenager will give up and go to drugs or depression. You know, so the minute your teenager is showing rebellion, that's the sign for the parent to wake up. And many parents don't wake up. So this is the tragedy, you know. And then they end up leading lives. No wonder Bronywar's uh, list of the top five regrets of people. Number one is I wish I had the courage to lead a life true to myself. Do you see uh, the role of parenting or parental pressures um, with people yes. dying? They end up with regrets about not leading. Yes. Well, yeah. Do you see a correlation? Yes. I, I work with people in their 50s who are still acting like their seven-year-old children of their parents, right? Doing right. what their parents, the parent is in the, your head now. Mm-hmm. The parent could be dead and gone, but there's a parent in the head. That's the whole problem. That's why I do this work. It is the fundamental problem, the parent in your head. And we haven't grown up. We haven't adulted ourselves to evolve, to live our own best authentic self. And uh, I know you've written a book about discipline among young, you know, the approach to discipline. So we, we have a uh, out of control. Yes, out of control. So I think that's what the next question is about from Mr. Abrar Sheikh, who wants to know how to discipline children, especially boys. Should there be any punishment, physical or emotional? If yes, how much? There's no such thing as physical punishment. So take that out. There's no such thing as punishment because punishment is uh, to presume that the child did it out of an evil intention. There's only teaching and mm-hmm. teaching and patience and, and tolerance and, and explaining and giving guidance. So there's no such thing as punishment in this book. People don't like when I say that. The next question, Dr. Shali, is about inculcating spirituality in a child's life. What do you think? Is there, should a parent even be intervening, encouraging, or um, is there an appropriate time? Right. I don't know what you mean by spirituality. In India, spirituality is very tied in religion. Um, okay. Well, this is not my question. It was came from a social media user. So I'm presuming the person, since he has uh, used the word spirituality, uh, I'm assuming it must be about getting in touch with your higher self. Yes. So in India, it's very much tied with belief in a God, a particular kind of God and then the rituals. So when I talk about spirituality, it has nothing to do with any organized um, yeah, I, I do have a feeling this is about not, not about organized religion yeah, because yeah, that happens on day one for, for yeah, young kids. Yeah. Yeah. So the way to, so the question is a, is a paradox in itself, right? Because you don't teach spirituality it's because spirituality in essence is to honor who your child is. So if the parent is the parent who decides to honor who the child is, that's it. 
That's it. That's the end of it. That's it. So there's no need for any further processes, anything else. Wow, that's beautiful. Well, well, it's it's not as simple. Right, it's so simple, but it's so difficult, right? Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. that that takes the parent on their own journey in order to be able to do that, right? In order to always honor the child. And this doesn't mean allow your child to destroy your house. This doesn't mean allow your child to smoke cigarettes at six. You know, you definitely are a guide. And, but you're living that kind of life. You're not smoking cigarettes. You're not having 10,000 pieces of chocolate at night, hopefully. So you're setting up the conditions for the optimum health and, and authentic right. life. Mm-hmm. So if you set it up that way and you're living your best life, that's the model that you, 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 you won't be threatened by your child if your child does anything out of your tradition because you're open and you're a curious person and you're, you're easy to talk to. And then your children naturally fall into that ease. That is spirituality. Living spirituality is being allowed to discover who you are and mess up and start again and feel unconditionally supported. That's living spirituality. Right. So it's not about a certain process or meditation or something like that. That that can happen as and when it happens. But before that, it's about honoring your higher self and honoring the higher self of the child. And most importantly, as you said, to give them the space to allow them to discover themselves. The next question, Dr. Shwali, is about growth mindset and how to um, enable your children to tackle adversities later on in life. Because um, just to give you a little statistic here, India happens to have one of the highest number of youth suicides in the world. One of the top reasons why youngsters die in this country is death by suicide. So there's obviously, of course, there's pressure for examination, there's competitive spirit to do well in life. Uh, But here's a concerned parent who wants to know about your take on the growth mindset and how to enable your kids to tackle adversities with a calm mind in life? Well, again, it's how you help them see what is the meaning of failure and what is failure and redefine Mm -hmm. failure and is a C grade bad? You know, it all comes from how we approach our own failures, what we call a failure, what is the word failure? Do we even use it? Do we love it? Do we embrace it? And growth, a growth mindset means uh, that the person understands that life is an ever evolving process of discovery versus mm-hmm. a fixed mindset where they're told that if you don't earn this much, you fail. If you don't look like this, you fail. If you don't marry this, you fail. So India is full of these benchmarks, you know, uh, these checklists and checkboxes. So get rid of the checkboxes. Growth in nature doesn't have checkboxes. Any words of inspiration for parents of children with special needs? Well, it's difficult. It's challenging. Get support. Be easy on yourself. Uh, it's a it's a big teacher. It's a huge challenge. Um, that means you have to have extra special patience, extra special uh, self compassion. Don't compare your child to other traditional linear models of competition and success. Find your own rhythm. You know, be very gentle on yourself because culture is not is not easy with anything that doesn't look typical. Sure, sure. You've been very kind, very patient. I think we've taken more the, more time than we had originally planned. Um, any parting words for the audience, Dr. Shafali? No, thank you for having me. And uh, they can find me at my website, drshafali.com. Thank you for listening. 
Um, and if you want to grow, I have lots of courses that I help people go on that I can help them discover themselves. Lots of free talks on my YouTube channel. So thank you for having me. My pleasure. It was a wonderful conversation. In closing, I'd just like to share this profound quote with the viewers that beautifully captures uh, your message, your quote um, from one of your books, which goes something like this. My child isn't my easel to paint, nor my diamond to polish. My child isn't my trophy to share with the world, nor my badge of honor. My child isn't an idea, an expectation, or a fantasy, nor my reflection or legacy. My child isn't my puppet or a project, nor my striving or desire. My child is here to fumble, stumble, try and cry, learn and mess up, fail and try again. Listen to the beat of a drum faint to our adult ears and dance to a song that revels in freedom. My task is to step aside, stay in infinite possibility, heal my own wounds, fill my own bucket and let my child fly. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Dr. Shefali Sabari for you. And this quote was from her book, Out of Control, by disciplining your child does not work and what will for her free masterclasses on Mind Valley, Look at the links below in the videos. And once again, Dr. Shefali, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Pleasure indeed.